This week, quantum computers get even more complicated. When you measure a system, not only are you disturbing in an uncontrollable way, but the result of the measurement you get isn't necessarily a property that the system had. And a look back at the recent history of art-science interactions, starting with Salvador Dali. It is with pi mesons and the most gelatinous and indeterminate neutrinos that I want to paint the beauty of the angels and of reality. Plus the genome of the koala's dinner of choice, eucalyptus. This is The Nature Podcast for June the 12th, 2014. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Thea Cunningham. Be it ballets inspired by the brain's connectome or intricate glass sculptures of the HIV virus, science and art have a lasting but complicated relationship. A new book, Colliding Worlds, delves into the recent history of sci-art and some of its more bonkers incarnations. Michael John Gorman of Science Gallery International in Dublin, Ireland, has reviewed Colliding Worlds in Nature, and Noah Baker caught up with him to discover his take on the sci-art of today. But before that, they looked back to the beginnings of science and art's lasting affair. I think you can trace the interplay between science and art back to ancient times. I mean, if you really wanted to push it, you could talk about uh, Pythagoras and his work on music and uh, the way music uh, allowed him to develop mathematical theories of harmony. Really in the 20th century and increasingly in the 21st century, there's been uh, a lot more vibrant connection between art and science. And that's really what uh, Arthur Miller's new book, Colliding Worlds, is all about. And one example is Dali, the work of Dali and how he was influenced by, by quantum mechanics. That's right. Well, Salvador Dali is a very interesting case. He, he wrote something called the Antimatter Manifesto in 1958. In that manifesto, he writes that in the Surrealist period, I wanted to create the iconography of the interior world, the world of the marvelous of my father Freud. I succeeded in doing it. But today, the exterior world, that of physics, has transcended the one of psychology. My father today is Dr. Heisenberg. It is with pi mesons and the most gelatinous and indeterminate neutrinos that I want to paint the beauty of the angels and of reality. An amazing shift uh, for Dali. And um, there are many references to to physics, um, particularly quantum physics in Dali's work. A lot of the work that that he produced um, would be paintings, often surreal and and, and strange, but, but quite approachable in terms of what people would broadly think of when they think of art. But as time has moved on, Art's developed quite a lot in terms of what art is. Is that fair to say? Oh, that that is fair to say, yes. Many of the more recent projects described in Colliding Worlds relate to performance art or to installation art, types of art that may be less obviously identifiable. One particular example of this, which I found fascinating, is that of, I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name correctly, Marion Lavalgente. Yes, that's pretty close. Could you tell us a little bit about the work that she's doing and where that's come from? So she is, I suppose you could say, a a performance artist. She did a very strange experiment where she had several months of injections with horse immunoglobulin in 2011 and then was involved in this performance where she had a transfusion of horse blood and then... uh, 
she walked around the the donor horse on a pair of prosthetic hooves, and samples of this this hybrid blood were then freeze dried and put in these aluminium cases. This was something not to be tried at home. But this is an example, I suppose, of one extreme of the spectrum of the new art science work described in Arthur Miller's book. In her work, she's using elements of biology and, and, and medical advancements as part of her work. But how much is she commenting on science itself? Or is she just utilising it as a tool? I think she is using it as a tool, but I think uh, works like hers, and there are other artists uh, who come to mind in this space, such as uh, Stellark, the artist who had an ear implanted in his forearm. These are artists who provoke debate about the the uses of science. Sometimes they can lead to some irresponsible discussion. Um, So I think it's very important that these kinds of works are presented in a way where they generate informed debate rather than simply inflaming an argument. Artistic movements in the past have often been quite closely interlinked with what's happening in science. Yeah, I'm thinking of maybe cubism or futurism, for example. Could this be a new movement in art to some extent? Is it going to be scienceism, for example? I feel very strongly that when we started the Science Gallery in Dublin, for example, in 2008, scientists wanted to be seen with artists because that made them look cool. I think what we're seeing now is that actually the artists and musicians want to be associated with scientists because that makes them look cool. And, you know, there's been a, a mainstreaming of art and science. If one thinks of the likes of Bjork and her Biophilia iPad album, which was a, a really an interesting piece of kind of almost mainstream culture, uh, which was informed by both art and science. And even uh, musicians like Will I Am, who are claiming publicly that we need to bring art and science back together in a, in a very kind of popular space. There's a moment happening when this kind of mingling of art and science is going from being a very fringe phenomenon to suddenly becoming a mainstream phenomenon, which is is quite interesting. I'm not sure if it's a movement or a moment uh, where the need to reintegrate art and science is becoming something in mainstream culture. That was Michael John Gorman talking to Noah. Colliding Worlds by Arthur Miller is out this month in the US and next month in the UK. Find the book review at nature.com slash nature. And for more art and science, check out the latest nature video, which is looking into a UK-based sound art project, turning an ecosystem into a living symphony. Find that video on youtube.com slash nature video channel. Coming up in the research highlights, ancient parasites and bee-friendly pesticides. But now... Welcome to the magical and mysterious world of quantum computers. Physicists are trying to understand what gives quantum computers so much more crunching power than classical ones. What weird quantum property could be responsible? Let's start with what weird things we know about quantum computers, and then when we talk to physicist Joseph Emerson, whose team has been thinking about them in a new report, we'll make it even more weird. Number one, quantum computers have clever bits. In a classical computer, the bits, the zeros and ones, follow each other. In a quantum computer, the prediction is that the bits, the zeros and ones, can exist simultaneously. Something physicists call superpositions. Well, Joseph says that might not be true. Number two, if you try and measure a quantum system, it changes, which complicates things. 
Well, something even more complicated might be driving quantum computers. Something hidden. Physicists call it magic. Yes, really. I think now is a good time to get Joseph Emerson on the line. So we know that quantum computers have the potential to be a lot more powerful than classical ones, but has it been a mystery so far why they might be so much more powerful? Yes, very very much so. It's um, something that is a, obviously a very important fundamental question, and we assume it will also have important practical advantages to kind of identify what it is about quantum mechanics that um, allows it to outperform classical computers. And what's known is that some quantum states are poor in the sense that they don't help you achieve an advantage on it. And other quantum states are good in the sense that they do trigger what's called universal quantum computation, where you have a full power of, of, of quantum computing. And what wasn't known is where is that boundary? Where is a boundary, once I pass that boundary, my states are good enough that they can actually trigger the advantages of quantum computation. And is that what quantum physicists refer to as magic? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, is, it has the funniness. And so what we're showing is that the source of this magic uh, appears to be uh, contextuality, which is a very old concept in quantum foundations. Now, listeners might remember that in quantum systems, if you look at what you're measuring, it can change. Is that the same as contextuality or is that a little bit different? That's a good starting point. So that's the notion of Heisenberg uncertainty principle. That's the idea that when you measure a quantum system, you disturb it in some uncontrollable way. Contextuality is a bit more subtle. It's basically telling us that when you measure a system, not only are you disturbing it in an uncontrollable way, but the result of the measurement you get isn't necessarily a property that the system had. So think of it as, you know, measuring the temperature in an oven. If you're about to bake something, you want to wait till it gets to 350 degrees. So nowadays we have a temperature sensor built in, and you can just read it off on the, on the oven to- top of the stove. But um, suppose you had a hand thermometer and you had to open the oven and put it in and read the temperature. Well, you would read the temperature, but you wouldn't read the temperature that the oven had because when you open the door, you let some heat out and the temperature probably dropped a bit. And so you're actually getting, the reading you're getting is a temperature that the oven has because you tried to measure it. Now, of all the properties you'd want to measure about a system, contextuality tells us that it's impossible to do that in a way where you can reveal the properties that the system had prior to measuring it. So it's kind of a, even worse than the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. Because not only are you disturbing it by measuring it, but you're not even finding out what property it actually had when you measured it. So now that we have our definition of contextuality, now that we know that not only can we not measure things directly without changing the system, but what we actually then measure, if we can measure it, wouldn't be necessarily what the system was outputting anyway. I mean, how on earth does that help you explain how quantum computers are so powerful? Well, I think that's what's really intriguing about this result is that we managed to connect a very practical question that is relevant to today's experimentalists trying to build quantum computers. You know, how good do my quantum states have to be? How good do my devices have to be to trigger the advantages of quantum computing? And we're connecting that to this very old, very weird, very mysterious concept, which has kind of plagued physicists and philosophers for about 50 years now. People have traditionally thought of quantum computers as working because you have these bits that are in a superposition of both naught and one right. at the same time, and that's what gives them their power. But you're saying actually it's not that. Precisely. And what I think is compelling about this most recent result is it tells us that's the wrong way to think about um, what's special about quantum mechanics. 
at that point of view, that you know the superposition is behind the power of quantum mechanics, that suggests that all of these states that you could prepare and submit to your computation, they would all be useful for achieving advantages over classical computing. But when you take a different point of view that there are hidden variables underlying the quantum system, it's the behavior of those properties which leads to the quantum effects. What we see is when there's a transition in the behavior of these hidden properties, we've shown that that corresponds to a transition in when the physical system can provide you with an advantage for quantum computing. But how can you build a property, a very slippery sounding property like this into a system? Nature does it for us. I mean, essentially, if we're able to control systems and prepare them according to the limits allowed by quantum mechanics, then that's enough to harness this weirdness that's happening at some kind of level that's not directly accessible to us. So we understand kind of what the predictions are practically and how to manipulate systems, but what we what nature's denying us is a way to have access to these kind of hidden properties beyond beyond the practical description. But nonetheless, you can look at them as it were askance and use what you can find out about them to build better systems, better quantum computers. Precisely. So what, what, what information we can access and what properties we can understand, yeah, those are useful kind of in the everyday working laboratories around the world. That was Joseph Emerson of the University of Waterloo in Canada. Still to come, the fragrance eucalyptus and its genome. But first, here are the research highlights read by Noah Baker. A pesticide based on toxins from spider venom seems to be safe for honeybees. It could replace other insecticides that have been banned because of their harmful effects on honeybees, which are important pollinators of crops. Researchers in the UK fed or injected honeybees with a pesticide containing a toxin from the funnel web spider. In many insects, the toxin makes its way to the brain, blocking calcium channels and causing paralysis. But in bees, the chemical had little effect on death rates, or on learning and memory. Either the venom extract doesn't reach the channels, or it doesn't affect them in the same way. Find that paper in the Proceedings of the Royal Society B. A tiny tick trapped in ancient amber carries an ancestor of the Lyme disease bacterium. A US paleontologist picked up the 15 to 20 million year old amber decades ago during a visit to mines in the Dominican Republic. He went back to it recently with a powerful microscope and noticed it contained fossilised ticks. Some of those ticks were infested with bacteria that resembled present-day Lyme disease bugs, but it's hard to know how closely they're related because analysing the DNA would destroy the precious specimens. Find the story in Historical Biology. If you've ever visited Australia, you might be familiar with the distinct smell of the eucalyptus tree. The gum trees are native to the country, but they're planted worldwide as crops and used to produce wood, timber, pulp and paper. The trees also produce essential oils important for medicine and industry, and they could be a big source of biofuel, which is why breeders are keen to get a better understanding of what's happening inside them. This week in Nature, a team have sequenced the genome of one of the most widely bred of the eucalypt species, Eucalyptus grandis. 
The woody tree adapts well and grows fast, and the genome throws light on which genes are responsible for these key traits. I spoke to lead author Zander Myberg at the University of Pretoria in South Africa. We were mainly interested in uh, understanding the uh, woody biomass production uh, capability of eucalyptus. It's already um, a worldwide uh, fibre crop. And so we were interested especially in understanding its ability to produce very high cellulose content wood, um, which is what makes it desirable for pulp and paper production. And you sequenced the genome. What did you see? Well, it contains uh, just about 36,000 genes, just an average size, medium size uh, plant genome. Um, There were some interesting findings, such as the fact that it has the highest proportion of tandem duplicate uh, genes uh, of all of the plant uh, genomes that we've sequenced so far. But more importantly, we were able to identify almost all of the genes involved in converting sugars into cellulose and hemicellulose in the tree, and also the, the, the other main component of wood, which is lignin. And these are important pathways to understand because They are the main uh, components that uh, will be used um, in terms of biofuels and and other biomaterials that are harvested from uh, woody biomass from trees. And now that we know which genes are involved in this, how might this be useful to industrial producers of wood? So the main main, uh, use of eucalyptus wood at this point is uh, pulp and paper. And most of the companies that are growing it increasingly now are looking at cellulose as a, as a raw material and um, you know, as for uh, a wide uh, array of cellulose products. Um, uh, one of those could be to, of course, um, break it down to sugar, to glucose. So cellulose is just a long string of, of glucose molecules and those could be, um, could be then fermented into biofuels. But in fact, there are many other very valuable products um, like uh, microcrystalline cellulose and and other textiles um, from viscose and and other uh, reconstructed fibers from eucalyptus. And so most of the companies, the commercial growers, would be interested in understanding what the potential is to enhance the cellulose content in these trees. And actually, more importantly, um, enhancing the ability to extract the cellulose. So, you know, wood is a, is a complex material and, uh, in fact, a lot of the energy and chemicals that go into pulping is just simply to separate the wood into its main uh, biochemical components, which is cellulose, hemicellulose and lignin. How feasible would it be to genetically manipulate the genome of E. grandis so that producers can essentially speed up breeding cycles? Um, eucalyptus is uh, notoriously recalcitrant to um, transformation, but in fact uh, there are a, a number of laboratories that have made breakthroughs and that can in fact um, transform eucalyptus grandis and other uh, commercial uh, species and hybrids. And uh, we will see uh, in, in this year, we will probably see the first commercial release of a, a transgenic eucalyptus tree um, in Brazil. Brazil is the leading eucalyptus grower in the world. They have uh, in the order of 4 million uh, hectares of eucalyptus. They, um, those are very highly productive growth areas for eucalyptus and they are especially able to grow these fast-growing uh, hybrid clones. And th- those are uh, really the, 
the first place to uh, deploy transgenic eucalyptus because they can be cloned. So Brazil is, is well suited and well positioned to be uh, one of the first places to uh, deploy uh, transgenic eucalyptus trees. That was Xander Myberg. And speaking of Brazil, this week's Nature is a South America special. Head to nature.com news for features and comments on the continent. Finally this week, Lauren Morello joins me on the line from Washington, D.C. for the news chat. Welcome, Lauren. Hello. And your first story is about extensions to the operations by the International Space Station. Yes, the, um, the United States is trying to extend um, the operating life of the International Space Station to 2024, which is seen as a really nice thing for scientists because the space station um, is finally living up to its scientific promise. And before this extension, when was it scheduled to end? It was scheduled to end in 2020. The 2024 extension isn't a lock yet, and part of the reason um, for that is that the United States and Russia are having some conflict over Russia's actions in Ukraine, um, and that could jeopardize the bid to extend the, the station's life. Mm, so tell us more about that. What, what effect is this action having? Well, the United States doesn't have a way to get its astronauts up to the space station right now. The space shuttle was retired in 2011, um, and they've been depending on rides from the Russians. And uh, a top Russian official, their deputy prime minister, recently said that U.S. astronauts should use a trampoline to get themselves up to the space station. Whether or not the U.S. is actually going to be able to keep uh, their staff and supplies going up to the station through 2024 is still a bit of a question at this point. So tra- trampolines aside, they're basically they're very much reliant on Russia to to get them up there. They are. They can get some supplies up there now using um, cargo ships made by SpaceX, which is a, a U.S. company. But for getting astronauts up there right now, they're dependent on the Russians. And in terms of the research that they'd like to carry out before 2024, what sort of things would they like to be doing? Well, in the past, they've tried to do experiments that look at how astronauts might do living in space for long periods, and that has produced mixed results. NASA has now shifted. They're going to be putting some Earth science experiments on the space station, um, and they hope that that'll be cheaper than flying such instruments on um, satellites. They're going to be putting up an instrument um, this summer that monitors ocean winds. And in September, they're going to be putting um, a laser system on the station that will be able to measure clouds and dust and pollution in the Earth's atmosphere. And also in August, they're sending up a giant rodent habitat. And they'll be using mice to look at questions about humans' capacity to endure long-term spaceflight. So it seems that just as this research is, is really one starting to get going, these tensions have, have come in and shifted the attention away from research up at the space station. Is it likely that it will blow over? I mean, that's the hope. The United States and Russia have been good partners on the station, um, and I think that the scientists in both countries are eager to keep collaborating. Um, so I think the hope is that the political tension will resolve and the attention can go back to the science. Okay, I'm moving to our second story about Myriad, a US space company uh, specializing in genetics. 
So a year ago, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that Myriad could not patent two genes that they've used in tests to assess patients' risks for breast and ovarian cancer. Um, And in the year since, scientists and patients and other genetic testing firms have been trying to build up a database of variants of these two genes. And the goal is that it'll be a free and open source collection of gene data that can be used to make cheaper, uh, essentially kind of generic tests for these uh, two cancer risks. And what's been the fallout of this decision? So since the Supreme Court decision, um, Myriad has actually uh, sued a couple of other companies that have been um, offering similar genetic tests, arguing that these uh, tests still infringe on their patents. But um, in the meantime, these companies are moving forward and trying to build broad databases of information that they can use to improve the accuracy of of their testing. And they argue that having more companies offer testing for these breast and ovarian cancer-linked genes will benefit patients by bringing down the cost of testing. So how many gene variants does Myriad hold compared to the public database? Myriad has about 16,000 right now. And the, uh, this public open source database called ClinVar now has about 5,700 variants. So could people go elsewhere then in, in search of testing? Yes, other companies um, are doing tests for these two genes right now, and that's brought the cost down already to about $2,200 on average. Um, Myriad has been charging about $4,000 for each test. And, and why generally is it important to have a lot of variants on hand? Well, there are thousands of possible variations for both of these genes that have been linked to breast and ovarian cancer. Um, and you want to have thousands of examples so you can understand which variants have been linked to cancer. When you have data from from thousands of people, you have a, a better understanding of where the risk actually lies. Thanks, Lauren. To read both stories in full, go to nature.com slash news. That's it for this week. Next time, five unusual ways to source water. I'm Kerry Smith. And I'm Thea Cunningham. <laughs>